Today I'll be preaching part three in a new series that I began last Sunday that I'm calling Future Shock Now. I'm riffing off the title of a book by Alvin Toffler, a futurist who that he wrote several decades ago entitled Future Shock, in which he foresaw, foresaw a time coming when the world and technology would change so dramatically and so quickly that mankind simply could not adjust to it. And that is what is happening. Lots of changes real fast, catastrophic changes, catastrophes, disasters. He saw all of that coming. And this will be the, today will be the third part in the series. I began last Sunday by talking about the fact that it's almost midnight. At midnight, a cry was made, behold, the bridegroom comes, go out to meet him. This past Wednesday night, I spoke from the subject, the four Babylons in prophecy. If you missed that, you need to get it. And I'd love to invite you to be here this Wednesday night. We're creating a new culture at Inspire Church. Wednesday nights are incredible here. And I'll be preaching this coming Wednesday night, as I've already stated, from Earth's next great event. You miss any one of these messages, and you're going to miss something dramatic and important. I'm turning today to the book of Revelation, chapter number 5, verses 1 through 5. And I'll give you a moment to find it. They're going to put it up on the screen. It's there already, in fact. And let me say this. These are challenging times when we all must make adjustments. If you're wondering what I'm asking the church to do, the church staff to do, on a daily and weekly basis, there are four words. Ask any one of our staff people this, any one of our pastors, and if they can't quote these four words, come talk to me and I'll, I'll get on their case. <laughs> That's a joke. But those four words are that important to us. Adjust, adapt, improvise, innovate. Adjust, adapt, improvise, innovate. We've had to completely learn a new way of doing church during this pandemic. As I mentioned, we're now being viewed by people in six continents. We're getting feedback from around the world. And it's been an amazing experience. What you have to guard for in times like these is that you don't become disconnected from things like corporate worship. You don't become disconnected from a local church family. And I would say that to those that are watching in other parts of the world. I thank God for the tremendous commitment on the part of this congregation. And you've just stayed right in there and I'm so glad. But I know people who are, as it were, their connection to the church that they're a part of is becoming frayed. And the reason is after months of being away, they now don't see the need to be committed to a corporate body of believers. That's happening all over the world. I talked to pastors from around the world, was in Africa just a couple of weeks ago. It's being experienced there. I'm hearing from other pastors in other continents as well. Same thing going on all across the United States. I have a number of sons that contact me in ministry, give me updates on what's happening in the churches they serve and pastor and how things are going. And the simple truth of the matter is that members can become disconnected and feel like I've got my own little thing going with Christ. I don't need the corporate body of believers. Here's what I want you to remember. If you have a huge bonfire, the quickest way to put it out is not go get water and put on it. Just simply pull the logs apart from one another. 
And very soon they'll burn out by themselves. You don't have to put any more energy on it. It's so vital that we be connected. And that's why I want to say thank you to those at home that are watching this. Because you know when this pandemic first started? What you could do is you'd get up in the morning say to your family... Church is coming, get out of your PJs, let's get ready, let's sit on the sofa. And you'd watch church together and you'd worship together. But as this pandemic went on, you kept your PJs on. Stopped putting on church clothes. And then after a while, you went to the next step. Well, it's on YouTube, it's on the website, I can watch it later. And instead of watching service, you're scrolling through the news, the sports figures, you know, statistics watching cartoons and then after a while you don't even plan on watching the service later and there's a deficit of the word of God growing we had a board meeting of yesterday of our board of directors and I was pleased to be able to inform the board that what we have done is watch discipleship grow deeper for very many people here as people are becoming more mature just talking to you as a spiritual father right now Because it is the desire of every pastor to see the members of the congregation he serves become more mature in Christ. And so things like the daily devotionals, we now have well over 1,400 families that are subscribed to that. That read the same scripture, pray the same prayer, do the same Bible study and worship to the same song every morning, seven days a week. 365 and a quarter days a year. If you haven't subscribed to it, you'll get a chance to at the end of the service. But there are some whose discipleship is not deepening. We've got Bible studies going on for men. We've got Zoom classes for women. We've got all kind of things that are happening all during the course of the week. Young people, young adults, it's going. But the one thing we can't do is... After creating these products and these means of ministering to people insist that people participate. And I want to thank you for the high degree of participation that we see, the percentage of people that are involving themselves. But I throw that out there to say that if you're in Africa, you're in Australia, you're in New Zealand where we have people who are watching. If you're in Europe and you're becoming disconnected from your church, don't. You need the corporate body of worshipers. And not only do you need to be in the house of God, you might not be able to all the time. With this virus, it's made it impossible in many places to worship. And others with underlying health conditions can't come even yet. But don't reach the place that you lose your want to. You understand what I mean? Because it's one thing not to be able to go, but it's another thing not to feel like I need to go. And Israel was in captivity 70 years in Babylon and their temple was destroyed and they could not go. You can have a compelling reason not to go. Theirs was they were in captivity. They were slaves. That's a pretty good reason not to go to church. Your captors won't let you. But when those 70 years were over and and Cyrus said you can return, they wept and cried and danced for joy to get back to the house of God. They couldn't go, but they never lost their want to go. Don't ever lose that because when you lose that, next thing that's going to go and begin to unravel will be your personal faith. You see, 
This is all set up. The economy of the kingdom of God is all set up on giving and receiving. And so you may say, I don't need to go. I'm receiving all I need right here at home. Wonderful. What about the person that sat behind you in church that you have an obligation to? There were two arms on the cross, one vertical and one horizontal. And you don't know, but when you get caught up in corporate worship and you lend your worship to that of other believers, it creates an atmosphere where somebody who might not be able to break through that you don't even know is in dire and desperate need is able to touch God. Hence the beauty of worshiping together. Somebody give God some praise right now. Amen. And so, like I said, you may be in California watching this. Don't lose connection with your home church. Just thought I'd say that. Revelation 5 verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So John said, I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. Now you're going to have to imagine John is on the Isle of Patmos in his 90s. He's the only remaining apostle that is alive. He and the other apostles dedicated their lives to preaching the gospel. They've trained and raised up sons and grandsons and granddaughters in ministry. Churches have been established. And all the apostles but John have been killed as martyrs for preaching the faith. John, they tried to kill him, boiled him in oil. He wouldn't die. They put him on the Isle of Patmos. And there he is, an old man laboring on Patmos. And he has given this incredible and extraordinary vision. And he sees this scroll sealed with seven seals. And an angel says, who is worthy to open the seals of this book and release out of it what's going to happen in the last days? And they look around heaven and not one of the converts John had, not one Peter had, not one James, not one Paul, none of the converts were found worthy. And this is so disturbing to John that John begins to weep and cry that no one is found worthy. But you see, none of us are worthy. Our worthiness is from him. And one of the elders said to him, do not weep, John. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Now, subject today is, are the horsemen coming? Father, speak to us. Your word always provokes an intended response. Whether we allow that to happen or not is up to us. The intended response of the book of Revelation is to draw us closer to God. To see you more brilliantly. And to prepare our hearts for things that are coming. May your word cause us to respond as you intended. Get our flesh, our will, our attitudes, our presuppositions out of the way as we submit ourselves to you. Most importantly, Lord, I ask you to smile upon the speaker today and forgive him of all of his imperfections. 
you can use him as a channel to communicate your truth to this incredible congregation that you may be glorified. In Jesus' name we ask and everybody said, Amen. Shout it out loud. I wasn't a shout. One more time. Amen. Beautiful. Or the horseman coming. We read in the book of Revelation that when the seals were opened, that four horsemen came galloping out. To be able to fully appreciate what they represent, one actually has to go back to the beginning of the book of Revelation. To me, the book of Revelation is absolutely and utterly fascinating. One reason is not because it talks about the end of time, that in itself is a fascinating discussion and subject of study. But in the book of Revelation, we see Christ exalted in a way that we do not see him presented in in the four gospels. In the gospels, he is revealed as the son of God. But in the book of Revelation, he is displayed as the mighty God. In the four synoptic gospels, he suffers on our behalf. But in Revelation, he reigns over everyone and everything. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he is shown willingly subjecting himself to the authority of men. In Revelation, he is unveiled as the conquering king who not only has already won every battle, but has all authority and is already wearing many crowns. In the Gospels, he is shown as beaten, bloodied, weak, broken, and ultimately crucified and buried. In Revelation, he is shown as all-powerful and glorious and very much alive forevermore. As I taught last Sunday, the last days is a very real period of time. It was prophesied by our Lord Jesus and by many other of the writers of the Bible. There is no doubt that we are actually living in the last days right now, right now. That's why I'm preaching this series on this subject. If you ask why I say that, it is because of the signs that were prophesied that would occur as indications that the end of time was near. Notice I said the end of time. There's the last days. Then as a final part of the last days, there's the end of time. You see what I mean? There were signs that were given to us that would describe for us a scenario so compelling, so clearly capable of being understood that no one could miss it. Paul said that you're not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night to those that aren't watching. But for believers, with all we've been given, Paul said it shouldn't catch a single one of us surprised. And anybody that looks at these signs knows that the signs, not just of the last, of the, of the, of the last days, but the end of time right now, that those signs have been fulfilled. There are many Bible scholars, for example, who believe that we're already living in the time of the seven seals of Revelation that I just read to you about. And I want to show you why they believe that. John on the Isle of Patmos in Revelation chapter 1 sees the Lord. I love this. Absolutely love it. You talk about encouraging. 
It is because John hideously scored by being boiled in oil. An old man stooped and bent, thrown on the Isle of Patmos, exiled because he preached the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ, is serving as a slave in the salt mines of the Roman Empire. Salt mines have ever since that time till now been synonymous with the most difficult labor. And that's what John is doing. He is working in salt mines. And he gets one day to rest. And it's the Lord's day. And in spite of his age, in spite of his toils, in spite of what he has gone through, in spite of the hardships, the confinement, the imprisonment, and the slavery, John is still worshiping God. Oh, I love that. <laughs> you see, Patmos is a small island located near Greece in the Aegean Sea. And it's where the Romans put their convicts. And these prisoners were forced to labor. But as I mentioned, what this passage of scripture shows me is that in spite of his hardships and in spite of his adversity, in spite of his age, in spite of his infirmities, he was in the spirit on the Lord's day and saw visions of God. You know what that says? You are never, you hear me? Never defeated by or at the mercy of your circumstances. Never. I want somebody to say that. I am never, shout it out loud. I am never at the mercy of my circumstances. Never. Never defeated by them. As John looks at this incredible vision, he sees Christ walking among seven golden candlesticks. He hears a voice and he turns behind him and there is the Son of Man in all of his radiant glory and splendor glistening brighter than the sun and he is walking among seven golden candlesticks and in his hand he holds seven stars from this vantage point John is literally seeing the panorama of time unfolded and he has shown what will happen all the way up to the end of time itself including the return of Christ and the great white throne of judgment and he is even given a glimpse into heaven one of the most marvelous and impacting of things that anyone has ever seen that's ever tried to serve God. These seven golden candlesticks were actually representative of seven historical churches is what God tells John, what Christ tells him. These seven churches served as apostolic centers or houses of influence that preached the apostolic message, the faith Remember the word apostle is used here, not in a doctrinal sense, but rather in a missional sense. The apostles were sent by the Roman government. It was a Greek term first used by the Greeks that when they conquered an area, they would send emissaries or ambassadors to replicate in these conquered areas the government at home. And so what Christ has done, he has commissioned apostles to go and as it were establish through the preaching of the gospel message, the government of the kingdom of God that they represent. The seven stars are the pastors of these seven churches of influence. 
There were many other churches. These churches had given birth to daughter churches and granddaughter churches and on and on. And these apostles had trained sons and daughters and grandsons and daughters and great grandsons and daughters in ministry. But God speaks directly to the seven stores of these seven churches. And there is a reason why. Each of these seven churches were uniquely different. Each of them faced different challenges, had different characteristics. And you might think that all churches are the same, but they are not. They are not meant to be. Look at the seven churches of Asia. He didn't try to make them all the same. You know why? Because every church is placed in the area God places it because its spiritual DNA contains exactly what is needed for that area to be released into its destiny. And not every area is the same. Every area has a different calling. It has a different destiny. It has different redemptive gifts. And so God doesn't place a church from one area that their redemptive calling and anointing can awaken that particular redemptive gift. He doesn't take that church and put them over here where there's a mismatch. He puts every church where it needs to be. That's why this church is unique. And that is why God placed us where we are right now. The calling of this church is exactly what our area needs to be able to have revival and to have the redemptive gifts that God placed in it called out. And the destinies of the people who live here to be released. Amen. These seven churches represent the seven prophetic ages of the church. They're not only seven historical congregations, but they represent seven different ages in which the church would exist. Each church represented a different age with different challenges. There was Ephesus that was the the first church. It was nearing the end of the apostolic era. John's the only apostle left alive. And notice what the challenge was. Ephesus was the loveless church. It had left its first love. This represents the early church age. It drifted away as the the apostles began to die off. And it began to drift from its passion for Christ. And this church was told to return to its first love. That was followed by the church of Smyrna. And that represented the persecuted church. As I've already mentioned, all of the apostles but one died of persecution. And it wasn't because they couldn't. It wasn't because they didn't try to kill the last one. They did. But the church entered an era of persecution. Where whole families were thrown into coliseums. Wild beasts, lions were turned loose. Some of the horrific things that happened are are stunning beyond imagination. Read Fox's Book of Mortars and you will see what I mean. As average church members gave up their lives rather than give up their God. This church of Smyrna, the persecuted church, was told to hold on and be faithful. And that was followed by the church in Pergamos, the compromising church, because this represented the third era of the church. When the Roman government finally seen that everywhere the blood of mortars fell, new churches grew up. Decided to stop fighting the church and to incorporate the church into its belief system. And so led by Constantine, the Roman emperor, he claimed he saw a sign and a vision of a cross in the sky. And a voice spoke and said, in this sign conquer, emperor the Constantine Stop fighting the church and merge the church with the Roman government. 
and brought into the church the paganism of Rome. It's polytheism. It's idolatrous practices. And the church began to compromise. And it was told to repent quickly, God said in this letter, or that God would come quickly and fight against it. But the age of Pergamos is followed by the church of Thyatira, the fourth age. And that was the corrupt church. And God's word to them was that compromise had led to corruption. Infiltrating the church and God warned them that they must overcome the corruption and that led to the fifth age of the church and oh by the way before I move away from the corrupt church you read through the, the, the church in the dark ages it was so corrupt it was stunning staggering it was staggering when they were worse than the people in the world and then came the church of Sardis. And that's the age when there was just a remnant hanging on and God's word to them was, you have a name that you're alive, but you're really dead. And then he said, strengthen the things that remain and are ready to die because they're weak and barely holding on. And that was the church that survived, the remnant. And then finally, there was the church of Philadelphia that was prophesied. The word Philadelphia means brotherly love. And it was the only church that God set before it a open door of opportunity that no man could close. And this was the great awakening. It began under Martin Luther during the Protestant Reformation, continued with people like John and Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, continued with people like Jonathan Edwards, General William Booth and others into the revivals of the last century, even at Azusa Street and others. It was the church of the open door, a church that loved humanity, church of brotherly love, and a church that had unbelievable revival, great revival. The church in Wales, the revival in Wales, I could go on and on, the one in South Africa, I don't think I need to continue. You get the picture. But finally, the last letter was addressed to the church of Laodicea. It represents the Laodicean age, which is different because by this time, Christ is not in the church. He's outside saying, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If any man will open the door, hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in. And it's amazing to me that Christ could be on the outside of his church and people feel like they're having good church and he's not even in the church. Think about it. We're doing fine, God. We don't need you. We don't need revival. And when you look at the word Laodicea, you find out What the problem was, God said this to them. He said, you're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm. And he said, I wish you was one or the other, but because you're not, I'll spew you out of my mouth. He said, you're making me nauseated. The word Laodicea literally means judged or ruled by the people. And this is the only church among the seven that is not going to the word of God for answers, at least in part. That is not looking to ministry for leadership. That is not looking to the voice of God. Instead, it's 
Oh, we got this, God. We don't need you. Pastor, we don't need you. Preacher, we don't need you. In fact, pastor, if we don't like what you preach, we'll go somewhere where they do because we're the ones that are going to decide what we want to believe. And man, if that doesn't describe the hour in which we live right now, I don't know what does. People are picking and choosing from the word and you find something, I mean, that used to be totally accepted by everybody, including the unsaved. They might not practice it, but they, that's the Bible. Now, you know what they say? Ah, that doesn't apply to today. That's old fashioned. You're outdated or even worse. They're passing laws in many places where you can't even preach. What used to be preached from pulpits in the word of God. I never have been one to bind to that whole hatred thing. Like you, the sinner, bless God, you're, you're going to bust hell wide open and, you know, and make people feel unloved. I've never subscribed to that. I don't think not any of us ever should have, but some of us grew up like that. But I tell you what, it's an altogether different matter to tell a sinner, you okay just the way you are. That's fine. Just stay the way you are. You come to God just as you are, but he'll change you after you come to him. Can I hear somebody say amen? Just as I am without one plea. Fanny Crosby wrote many years ago, but once the word of God begins to work on you, it makes you want to make some changes. The old gospel song said, makes me love everybody. Anybody remember that? Once you get God on the inside, he goes to work in your heart. And this word Laodicea is the word we get our word laity from. And it's scary because what the Bible is talking about is a day and age when the church people are going to, I pick a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And it's kind of like that. What was that song? Mambo number five, a little bit of Susan in my life, a little bit of Erica, whatever the words were. You know what I mean? Pick and choose. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. And that I reject right there. So there are seven historical churches of Asia. And they represent seven prophetic ages. But did you know they represent also the seven types of believers who exist today? You have churches of Philadelphia that exist right now. But you have churches of Laodicea that exist right now. And they're more interested in pleasing the social media and getting likes than they are preaching the word of God. You have persecuted churches too. They exist right now. Churches in India, China, Bangladesh. Churches in Pakistan. Churches in Malaysia. We could go on and on. Saudi. I've been in some of these places where they're persecuted and even being killed. And it's going on right now. And hey, you know what's really crazy about it is that right now we're living in a time when even the West is turning against the church. By the West, I mean Europe, Canada, the United States. Who would have thought this could ever happen? But you see open hostility expressed. Toward the church, even in church, nations that were once very pro-church. And so you have believers like those, churches like Ephesus who have, 
who were once passionate that have left their first love. You have churches like Smyrna who are persecuted. You have churches like Pergamos who have compromised. You, have, you know them too. You have churches like Thyatira that have been, become completely corrupted. You have churches like Sardis that are barely hanging on. You probably know some folk like that. Churches like that. This pandemic has affected very many believers in our world and made them, as I mentioned earlier, become less committed to actual church attendance. And you know what the Bible said about that? Because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. I thank God that our church has grown during this. Amazing. We're growing. But I have pastors that contact me all the time that are not experiencing that. And not only do they represent the seven historical churches, the seven church ages, the seven type of churches. Are you ready for this? These seven churches represent the seven kinds of believers that exist right now. And here's the big question. Which one are you? Big question. Which believer are you? Are you an Ephesian believer? That is, you have left your first love? Hope not. Are you one of the churches in Smyrna that is being persecuted? Are you a believer in, in India being persecuted and you're watching this right now perhaps? I pray for you. Are you a church of Pergamos? Are you one of those believers that have compromised your values? Wow. Are you a Thyatiran believer? And you've actually compromised your values so much that your heart has become corrupted. And you don't even know if you can find your way back yet. Or are you a believer from Sardis and you're hanging on right here in this service by the skin of your teeth. Just your fingernails drug, dug in saying, I got to hold on to God. Is that, is that you? Or are you one of the Philadelphian believers? Or are you one of the Laodicean believers and you're sitting out there right now saying... Eh, thumbs up on what he just said, but down on what he said a while ago. Even though it's in the scripture. You see, as the rest of this book unfolds before John, you have to understand that the horsemen come in the Laodicean era. And suddenly, John is caught up in Revelation 4. And he sees the scene in heaven and the Lord is on his throne in all of his majestic beauty and 24 elders around the throne and four beasts are there. They have the head of an ox, the head of a, an eagle, the head of a man and the head of a lion. Same creatures that Ezekiel saw in his vision. John now sees. And then in Revelation 5. He has shown this scroll. They didn't make books the way we make books with pages that you can flip open. It was rolled together in one continuous scroll that might stretch from here to the drum set or even longer. And what they did is they rolled it up. It was made of parchment or animal skin. And then what they would do is they would put a wax seal on it and the insignia or the stamp of royalty or the authority, whatever that might be. For example, if you sold a piece of property, you would put your personal stamp on that so that someone else would have that deed signifying that you had indeed sold the property. 
And this scroll is rolled up and it's clear to John that it's got writing on him, but he can't read it because it's rolled up. But it's got seven seals on it, seven being the number of perfection in the book of Revelation, seven churches, seven candlesticks, seven stars, seven seals, seven angels with trumpets, seven bowls, seven thunders. The number of completion. You get the idea that in Revelation things are wrapping up. And the angel asked John, who is worthy to open the book? And John weeps because after years and decades of ministry and the lives of his best friends, the other apostles and the churches they've started and, the, and planted and believers that have died in Colosseums and whether they're in heaven or on earth or he said under the earth, meaning they've already gone on to be with God. There was no one found worthy. And John says, I failed in my mission. And suddenly one of the elders says, don't weep, John. You didn't fail. The lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to open the book. Hallelujah. And John turns to look at the lion. And this is what is so amazing. When he turned to look at the lion, he said, I saw a lamb as though it had been slain. I love that because the one the angel called the lion and the elders of heaven called the lion. John said, well, that's the one I always called the lamb. <laughs> I was there that day when John the Baptist looked up and said, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. I was there. And you're calling him the lion of the tribe of Judah. You see, they're the same person. And this is important because there are very many people that don't understand some of the statements that they make that have no factual foundation. They say, how could God allow these things in the book of Revelation to happen? Because isn't God good? Isn't he fair? Isn't God love? And, and they say, God must not be any of those things or he wouldn't allow this to happen. But what they overlook is that the judgments of the lion are made possible by the mercies of the lamb the mercies of the lamb justify the judgments of the lion if he had not been so good and merciful then maybe we would have an argument but he has been so much so that he gave his life's blood for us that we could be saved and be a part of his bride and, and have our names written in the book of life and glory could somebody shout hallelujah that knows what I'm talking about Amen. And that brings us to Revelation 6, doesn't it? And it is then that the first four seals begin to be opened. I will not finish this. I'll finish this this coming Wednesday night. But I'll get through the first seal only. And suddenly, you hear the thundering, galloping hooves be, hoof, hoof beats of horses. And you look up and you see four horses, what we call and what have been commonly referred to as the horsemen of the apocalypse. The first is a white horse. Second is a red horse. Third is a black horse. Fourth is a pale horse that really in the Greek is light green. Green, the color of gangrene. Decay, death, putrefaction. 
We'll only get time to look at the first writer and John, uh, John's writing of Revelation 6 verses 1 and 2. Now I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked and behold, a white horse and he that sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. I've heard very many preachers through the years say, That was Christ. That's the rapture right there. No, it's not. It's not the rapture. The reason we know it's not the rapture is look. You look at the context and look at the other passages in the book of Revelation. The real Christ returns to fight at the battle of Armageddon later in the book. And when he comes, he too is riding a white horse. You know why white horses are significant? Because horses would have... A, a, a king would come and he wanted to show his intention of peace. He would ride a white horse. And so that's Christ's intention. He's the prince of peace when he comes later in the book of Revelation. But he comes and defeats the Antichrist in the battle of Armageddon. But in this chapter, there's a rider on a white horse that is not the real Christ. He's a facsimile. He's a fake. You see, if I wanted to create a fake $100 bill, I wouldn't put my picture on it. You'd need to put Benjamin Franklin, right? Because it's false and easily recognized. And the reason this rider is riding the white horse is because he's coming as a fake Christ. He looks like the real thing to people. The answer to our problems and between me and you, I believe he's alive right now. And the Antichrist will not, that's my opinion, and the Antichrist will not conquer the world and say, you got to do what I said. No, he's coming to conquer the world with peace. Notice he's given a bow, but where are the arrows? There are none. He conquers with peace. Amen. God thinks it's so important for us to understand that the Antichrist is coming and you may say, why even preach that in church? Let's, let's preach the love of God. And this is the love of God, friend. It's God caring so much for you that when the bridge is out, he says, hey, the bridge is out. That's love. But God cares so much about us knowing this and wants to inform us so much that you know 27 chapters in your Bible are devoted to discussing this guy, this false Christ. Daniel 2, Daniel 8, Daniel 9, Daniel 11. Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, 2 Thessalonians chapters 1 and 2, 1 John chapter 2, chapter 4, 2 John chapter 1, Revelation chapter 6 through 20. All discuss the Antichrist. He's called by many different names in the Bible, beginning all the way back in the Old Testament. Among them, the little horn, the man of sin, the abomination of desolation, the wicked one, the beast, the son of perdition, the Antichrist. And what he will do will be to establish a peace plan between Israel and the Palestinians. And when this peace plan is established, they will announce plans to rebuild a temple. How do we know we're living in the last days? Listen to these next few things. Second Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 4. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled. Paul is writing 2,000 years ago telling church people, don't be upset. 
either by spirit or by word or by letter as from us. Some historians say that somebody actually wrote a letter to the church of Thessalonica, signed Paul's name on it. It was a fake and said, Christ had come and you've missed it. And Paul said, don't let those people disturb you, frighten you. You see, really, that begs this point right now. I'm not preaching what I'm preaching to scare anybody. I'm preaching to inform you that you can make intelligent decisions for you and your family about how passionate you need to be about God and where Christ should be in your life. Amen? Now, there was a time when as an evangelist, yeah, I'd scare the daylights out of the people. Goodbye, sinner friend. Get in the altar and give my heart to God. Now I'm a pastor. I want to see you make it. I want to see your families thrive. I don't want to see you get upset in the last days and get lost in the shuffle and disconnected. Paul said, don't let any of that happen as though the day of Christ had come. Let no man deceive you by any means. Oh, Deception connected with the Antichrist. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. Wow. That's that disconnection I was talking about earlier. And the man of sin is revealed. The son of perdition. There's two of his names right there. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. Notice this. So that he sits as God in the temple of God. Showing himself that he is God. There will be a temple built and then there will be a time when this figure, a political figure, will say, you know the reason I've been so successful is I'm really God. And in reality, that's the Antichrist. But here's the point. There has to be a temple constructed for him to sit in. What is the possibility of a new temple being built? The reason there has to be one is because in AD 70, the Romans destroyed that one. And John's talking about the Antichrist after that temple was destroyed. So it is yet in the future. And for 1,900 years since John wrote that, there has not been any temple in Israel. In fact, in AD 70, when the Romans destroyed the temple, they also completely destroyed the nation of Israel, issued a law that if you spoke Hebrew and you were found in Palestine, you would be executed and the Jews scattered to the four corners of the earth. And there was no Israel, much less a temple for Israel to worship in. But the Bible is saying that in the last days, there will be a temple. The Antichrist will set himself up in it. So what is the possibility of that temple being built? Did you know the temple society And Jerusalem, Israel has already drawn up the actual blueprints for the construction of the temple. The priests have already been trained in all the rituals and in the offering of the sacrifices. All the pieces of the furniture and all the furnishings, including the robes of the priest, including the curtains, the veil. They've all been made and that includes the candlesticks and the altars and table of showbread and even includes a new ark of the covenant and they're already finished they're waiting right now for the temple so that they can begin to use these things you say i thought they were going to find the old ark they hope they do but if they don't no problem 
They've got a new one that they're ready to go with. One of the most serious indicators of where we are is to remember that before these things could ever happen, the nation of Israel had to first come into existence. I told you a moment ago, they were destroyed in AD 70. And for 1,900 years, there was not only no temple, there was no Israel as well. None. And I'm, I'm just about done. I'm wrapping it up right now. And do you know not once in history has there ever been a nation that has been destroyed for almost 2,000 years come back to life? It just doesn't happen. Where are the Jebusites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Amorites? And you get my point. But yet at the end of World War II, after 6 million Jews were killed in extermination camps, and I've visited those extermination camps, and it's horrific and it's Graphic, and you want to see something that will shake you to the core, go to the Yad Vashim, the memorial to the Holocaust in Jerusalem. And it will make you know that Bible prophecy is real. Because they were going through this time, the time of Jacob's trouble, and they were killed, six million of them. And at the end of World War II, the United Nations said, we've got to put it, create a place where this never happens again. Now, those of you that are younger, I, this happened before I was born. It's real easy to look at Israel and think, well, it's always been there. It hasn't. It's only been there since May 14, 1948. And Jesus said that generation that saw it come about would not pass away until the end of all things. I can't tell you how long a generation is. If it's 70 years, we're already in the red zone on the gauge right now <laughs> people live longer now so maybe maybe that's taken into account i just don't know but I, but i'll tell you this it's remarkable that there's a now a modern nation of israel because do you know even the religious scholars used to say that's one reason we know the bible is not the word of god it is impossible for a nation to come back from the grave yet israel did and there were many prophecies that foretold that. Among them, Isaiah 66, verse 8. Who has heard such a thing or who has seen such a thing? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day or a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion, that's Israel, travailed, she brought forth her children. Wow. Now to get all that started with temple service, there was another law in Leviticus that they had called the law of the ashes of the red heifer. And they would take a red heifer that according to their law could only have one hair of another color from nose to tail. It had to be pure red. And not only was Israel destroyed, they lost that genetic breed of cattle. So they had been in the process for the last several decades of inbreeding cattle to produce a cow, a heifer that is totally red. And what they have to do is sacrifice it, take its ashes mixed with water. And there were all kind of restrictions that if you even touched a dead insect, you couldn't go to the, the, the temple to worship. You had to be purified. They'd sprinkle you with the ashes of the red heifer. And they have been waiting for that. Guess what? They have now developed two heifers that are totally red that do not have more than one hair of another color. Wow. That's kind of crazy. 
all of that right there in your Bible and it's marching out of your Bible into current events, but who pays attention to that, right? When we're more interested in whether the Texans won or the Rockets. But we're living in the last of the last days. How about the end of time? Yeah. Another sign of the Antichrist is this whole thing about invasion of privacy and the mark, what the Bible called the mark that I speculated. Could that be a vaccine or something? I don't know. Score left and maybe insert a RFID chip. In China, one-fourth of the population is in China. Let's not forget, another fourth of the population is in India. And guess what they're doing in both places? China skipped the credit card phase. They don't use credit cards or debit cards in China. They went directly from cash to using your smartphone with an, a QR code to buy everything. From crabs at the fish market. Serious. Pull it up on YouTube, I dare you, Cashless Society, China. Do that. They hardly ever use cash anymore. In three years, cash has almost been completely done away with in China. They're implementing something very similar in India. That will be half the population of the earth that is is living in a cashless society. Oh, I know. But if it doesn't happen here in America, it must not be happening anywhere, right? That's our attitude. The point is, is that things are happening, dear ones. We're living at the, toward the end of time. When will Jesus come? I don't know. Yeah, I'm glad to see Robert here. First service, they were back there and I kept waiting and waiting. I finally wanted to know if they were having a prayer meeting. Did I scare them all after that? Amen. Musicians interceding. Oh God, oh God. That's a joke. Because it's not been my intention to scare anybody. It's just, we need to be informed. Well, every head is bowed and every eye is closed. And those of you at home are listening as well. If you don't know God and you need Christ in your life, would you slip up your hand and say, pray for me, pastor, I need to be saved. And you in your home can slip up your hand right where you are, right where you are. Pray for me, pastor, I need Christ in my life. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. How many... You'd slip up your hand and say, Pastor, I think I feel God stirring me to draw closer to him. And I feel God asking me to kind of rebuild the fire. Could I, would you slip up your hand right where you are and say, pray for me. God bless you. Come on. Hands raised all over the building. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. I want to pray for you. Those of you in your homes, raise your hands too. Now, the good news is it doesn't end with this stuff. Saints get caught away to glory. We get to walk streets of gold. We get to be in the presence of God. Amen. Father, I thank you today for the word of God that is so incredibly insightful. I thank you for helping us to understand the promises of your book, the hope that it gives us, and let it give us hope. Not despair, hope. Because... Those who come to you, you welcome with arms wide open. You don't condemn us. That's why John wept. No one was found worthy and none of us here today are. We need you. We need your grace. We need your salvation. We all do. 
Every day of my life, I pray the same prayer. Lord, forgive me where I failed you. Hide my life in the blood of Jesus. Hide me under the blood. Hallelujah. Cover me with the blood of the Lamb. Let my life be hid with Christ in God. And I pray that for every person here that's raised their hands. That we could draw close to you and be excited in these troubled times and not feel with despair like so many are. We don't know when you're coming. It might be this year. It might be next year. It might be 10 years from now, 20, 30, 40, 50. I don't even know. All I know is this, is you could come for me today, Lord. You could come for one of these precious dear ones today. None of us have a promise of tomorrow. So we ask you to save us and write our names in the book of life. And everybody shouted and said, Amen.